see that this is part of our morning worship. We like to come together and pray together as part of our corporate worship. And this morning, we're going to have kind of a dual focus. Every time, every week, we have a focus that we join together as a body and pray for. And this morning, we're going to be praying for, celebrating, recognizing our, graduate, our graduates as well. We're going to be praying for our fathers this morning. So first, let us recognize our graduates. And then after that, we'll transition into a time of praying for our for our fathers. But we're going to be recognizing three graduates this morning who are with us. Uh, we have four total in our congregation. One could not be with us. But we're going to be honoring and praying for uh, John Peterson this morning, for Stephanie Caro, for Hannah Finnerty, and for Gentry Turnage. And Gentry's not able to be with us today. But I'd like to ask for our graduates to all at this time to come forward and join me up on the stage. And as they make their way up, if you guys wouldn't mind just uh, giving them a round of applause and congrat- congratulating them. Guys, just come over here if you want. So if you guys don't mind just joining together with us as we, as we pray for these guys as they uh, prepare to take the next steps in their life. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the work that's been accomplished in these graduates. Lord, in their lives during the last several years. And we thank you for protecting these graduates as they have gone through school. And we thank you for the opportunities they have had to explore and engage during their education so far. We ask, Lord, that you will guide these graduates as they try and discern, along with their families, what the next steps should be, Lord, and where they should seek to explore and uh, which direction they should go in. Lord, we pray that they will continue to, to be students of your word, first and foremost, Lord, that they will seek you first in all that they do. And even as new temptations start to come their way, Father, that they will know that you are with them. Lord, open their eyes to see the direction you'd have them go in. Lord, to have eyes to see the opportunities you are giving them. Lord, we pray that they will honor you in their new journey. And as always, Lord, we pray that that they will remember that you love them, you care for them, you're with them. Lord, we ask that you'll give them a hunger for your word and a compassion for the lost and the desire to see the lost reached. Lord, we ask that you'll continue to grow them even when tough times come their way. Lord, thank you for these graduates and their lives. Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing in them and that you're going to do in them. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we uh, will continue to support you as your church family, even as uh, I know at least a couple of you will probably be going off to school. So know that you can always come back and, and we'll be here for you guys. And we have just a small thing for you this morning, a small gift, a Bible and a little book about graduating. So I want to present this to you guys and then um, we'll transition over to a time of prayer for our fathers. So. Thank you guys so much. And y'all can give them another round of applause as they go back to their seats. All right. Thank you guys for joining us in that. So next we're going to transition to a time of praying for our fathers. And we're grateful for the role of father and for those who have served to provide for us in in that capacity. And uh, we want to recognize our fathers and, and pray for them this morning. So to recognize them, we would like to ask that everyone who's not a father to to stand up and for the fathers to remain seated. And if you would, just reach out and lay your hand on a father who's near you. And uh, we're going to join together and pray for them this morning. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we're joining together in prayer to thank you for those we call father. First and foremost, we thank you, our heavenly father. We thank you for how you love us, even though we have turned our backs on you at times. We thank you for caring for us, for showing compassion, and for the sacrifice that you have made for us so that we can have eternal life. We thank you for the fathers who are part of our lives, for the ones who have loved us, Lord, who provide for us. And we ask that these men will know how deeply the love of God, Lord, that they will know your love and they'll be moved to reflect who you are to those who you have entrusted in their care. Lord, we ask that you will bless the efforts of fathers who want to know you, Lord, and their children better. We ask that you'll let it be known that you are near as they are working to provide. Lord, they desire, I'm sure, to be patient. Lord, in striving to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Lord, we pray for those who are not in the role of father and for those who no longer have someone on earth to call father. Lord, please comfort them this day and lovingly embrace them with the love of God. Thank you for allowing us to call you father. And we thank you for Jesus, the name of the one who has made it possible for us to approach you today. Amen. 
And let's say a brief prayer as we uh, take our offering this morning. So yet again, would you pray with us? God, we thank you for the opportunity to give back to you because we recognize that you've given everything to us in the first place. And we want that to be a deep, uh, resonant truth with us. We would recognize daily and be grateful daily for all that you've given us. And that we would give out of response. Uh, that we would love out of response. That we would forgive out of response. We would show grace out of response to all that you have lavished on us. So please take these things that we give to you and use them to build your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one of the things I just want to draw your attention to, once again, is the elder and deacon nomination in the uh, bulletin. If you weren't here for the announcements, right in the middle of your, your bulletin, we're, we're nominating uh, Lee Williford for elder and Ken Morgan and Matt Damaris for deacon. And we will be, in two weeks, we'll having forms that you will be able to uh, indicate as the Lord has led you in prayer, whether you agree with this decision or whether you defer to the elders, as in, I haven't prayed about it, but I trust the elders' decision in this, or I don't agree, and I think this is God's will for our uh, church life, and I will <clears throat> be in touch with the elders. But really, we want you to be in touch with us before. If you have any kinds of questions, whether great things, bad things, or I don't know this guy so well, tell me about him. We would love to tell you about these men that we believe the Lord has called to uh, serve in these capacities. And I think you will be quite blessed uh, as we have been in our prayer and preparation. Um, So uh, that will be coming up in two weeks. This morning we continue a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We've come to a place in the Gospel of Mark uh, that we're slowing down and, 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 and essentially looking at the same text for three weeks in a row, though we're taking different approaches each time. All of this chapter, chapter 13 of Mark, uh, involves a study on the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, not thinking so much about the second coming of Christ, but just thinking about the time when your life would end, how would you respond if you knew that you had one week to live? Now, not many of us know that, especially out of the blue. Um, We have a friend in uh, Fuquay, I say we, I'm looking at Jim and Joy and Vicky, and she's a really good friend. I can't remember her last name. Used to work at the bank. Atkins, Vi- Jimmy and Vicky Atkins. Vicky Atkins was at the bank one day at Patriot State Bank, and then within one week, she was with her Lord and Savior. Had no idea. Just went to the doctor, and he said, "You're sick." And Gary and Barbara know Vicky as well, and James. But just one week, she was there. Not many of us get that kind of notice that we're going to be in front of the Lord within one week. But what if you knew that you had a year or less to live? How would you respond? How would you live your life for that year? A lot of books have been written, movies have been made about these kinds of scenarios. And in those kind of situations, you rarely see religion being a factor in the way somebody thinks about that last week of life. Unless it's just in a very generic way. But we are not a fatalistic people. We're far too wealthy to be fatalistic. And so most of us in our country are going to think long and hard when we are faced with our own mortality about what comes next. Even so, facing the, the reality that we are going to be with the Lord sooner rather than later, while it may cause a great deal of initial soul searching, oftentimes we revert right back to who we have been all along. We are essentially who we have been becoming. Our only hope of meaningful change and being prepared for the day that we stand before the Lord is the gospel of Jesus. One of the primary points of Mark 13 is not only to live as though today may be our last day, but to live as those who must give an account of their lives to the one who has given everything for them. 
we must live as one who will give an account to the one who has given all for us. Last week was an overview of Mark 13. And I want to tell you right now that if you weren't here last week and you really want to be serious about understanding end-time events, it would be very helpful if you would go back and listen to the podcast. You can find that on our website, or I've actually attached the the, the script of the message, not the the transcript, the manuscript, the one that I wrote before I preached. It's always different than what I write, but not not significantly so. Um, That's on the city. But if you, if you want to get a feel for this, then you, you need to take all three of these messages uh, together. Um, <clears throat> this week is going to be more of an explanation of the text. Last week was sort of an overview. This week, we're going to look at the chapters, this chapter's content And try to make some sense of some really difficult verses. There are a lot of tough verses in Mark 13. uh, Both individual verses and groups of verses. And then next week, we're going to look at how our interpretation of these passages surrounding the end times affects the way we live. It affects the way we interact with the world. In fact, it affects the way that we interpret all of the rest of Scripture. So it's really important to to get a sense of why we believe what we believe. Uh, One thing that all Orthodox believers agree on is this. Jesus is going to come again. And we are called to be ready. As you will see, much of our text on the screen as we work our way through the chapter. Right now, we're just going to read these last Uh, 10 verses or so. We're going to read Mark 13, verses 28 through 37. So if you would please stand as we read what is the culmination of Jesus' words about his return. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day or the hour or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. That's one of those tough verses we'll we'll come to. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, Father, uh, we pray that our hearts would be awake and on fire as we anticipate your return. Much of what we are given in your word about the return of our Savior, our Lord and Master, the Messiah, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Much of what is said about his return is complex, it's confusing. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the things that are important. Focus our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we focus on our text this morning, I want to remind you of a point that we acknowledged last week. A lot of people missed Jesus' first coming. They didn't recognize that Jesus was who he was when he came onto the earth. Now, a lot of people said, oh, wow, you are, 
Lord, you are Messiah even. But to recognize Jesus as God just didn't happen. They missed his person. They missed his purpose. So why is it we think we know so much about his second coming? Well, he told us about his second coming. Yes, and he told us about his first coming too in in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and yet people missed it. They didn't understand it until after his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Well, there's the difference, the Holy Spirit. Let me simply say that what you believe about the end times has been influenced greatly by what someone else sensed that the Holy Spirit was saying to him or her about these teachings. And what that person that you believe or that you follow has sensed that they heard from the Holy Spirit is not at all what these believers over here sense that they have heard from the Holy Spirit as they've studied these scriptures. And both of these are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. They're orthodox. They're godly. We'll talk about that next week. The orthodox umbrella uh, covers a pretty large group of believers. People who agree on almost everything else differ when it comes to what they believe about the end times and how this all fits together. Next week's message is going to be more of a lesson about those different views and and what people believe exactly about Jesus' return. And we're going to have terms like premillennial and amillennial and postmillennial and and tribulation and pre-trib and abomination of desolation and things like that. We'll talk about some of those in a little more detail than we do today. And hopefully by the end of next week it makes more sense. But again, you've got to take all three times together. That's why I want to encourage you to go back and, 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 and think of this overview and then think of this explanation and then next week we'll sort of lay it out a little bit about where people fall on all of these. If you uh, will bear with me today, this, we're going to talk about what the text, more, far more about what this text does not say than what it does say. And that can be kind of frustrating. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, anybody can be a naysayer, right? You know, like, no, that's not exactly what trying to do. Just want to take a look and, and try to understand that if we're going to get a grasp of second coming theology, our eschatology, as it were, is going to be what it should be. We at least need to make sure that we're not misapplying Scripture. Doesn't necessarily lead you completely one way or another, but it does make you say, hmm, wait a minute, I've always thought about this being a particular way. Uh, if you recognize that this is only one component of understanding end times theology, although a very significant component it is, and if you can know that I am not going to trample on your beliefs, I promise you. Not going to say, well, this is wrong, this is stupid, this is, and anybody's got any sense would believe this. I don't know what I believe on all of these things. I, I used to, I used to believe it quite well until I was challenged with some of the ways that I interpreted and applied scripture. But I'm not going to trample on your particular beliefs, so I trust that you'll find today's message helpful. In the big picture. And if you're visiting for the first time, you are in the middle of a, 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 of a sandstorm almost. You know, it's like you, you come into our church and it's like, what in the world? But this is just where we are in our study of, of Mark. And I, I hope it, it's okay with you. Um, you'll recall that when Jesus left Jerusalem with his disciples after, after having pronounced judgment on the religious leaders in the temple, the disciples were trying to soothe his anger a little bit. And they're saying, Jesus, isn't this a, a marvelous temple? Look at these stones. They're, some of them we, we learned last week were as big as a railroad boxcar. They were humongous, three times as large as any stone in the pyramid. This was a remarkable facility. And Jesus has just pronounced judgment on it. And they're saying, Jesus, th- doesn't this show you God's love for us as a nation, this temple? Jesus simply said, you see it, not one stone will be left on another. The temple, Jesus essentially said, is going to be completely destroyed. So when they reached the Mount of Olives, 
overlooking Jerusalem in the Temple Mount, some of the disciples asked Jesus, according to Mark, when these things would occur. What things? What, what things is he talking? When he says these things, what things is he talking about? What, when will what things occur? Well, this same conversation uh, and particular teaching was recorded in Matthew 24 and 25 and also in Luke 21, as, as well as Mark 13. And Matthew particularly fills in some details that Mark leaves out. Matthew tells us that when the disciples asked Jesus about the destruction of the temple, they also asked Jesus what the signs would be of the end of the age and of his coming. Now, that's a little bit strange when you think about it. The disciples didn't know that Jesus was going anywhere. So why would they ask, tell us about your coming? Maybe they picked up on a little bit of his language and... Maybe it was just the Holy Spirit them so, leading them so many times people in the New Testament in our account of Mark and uh, especially the narratives in the New Testament speak much better than they know. They don't really understand how much truth they are saying. So the disciples ask, what will be the signs of the end of the age and of your coming? Um, it's possible that the disciples were thinking about when Jesus comes into his kingdom, when he is recognized by everybody, and maybe they see these two events as the same. The destruction of the temple, his coronation, and maybe actually a third event, the, the consummation of all things. This is when all things are set to right, and Jesus rules the world, and everything is going to be exactly like it is. And so the disciples say, when is all of this Happen, But Jesus doesn't lump the two events together, the destruction of the temple and his return, the desecration of the temple and his return. He separates them, but let's jump in and, and try to sort out that a bit as we go. Now, once again, let me say it's important to recognize that Jesus was speaking privately to his disciples. Why do you think that's important? Because he's speaking to believers He's speaking to his followers. He's not speaking to the Jewish nation. He's speaking to his followers. In fact, he has pronounced judgment, significant judgment, on the leaders of the Jewish nation. Although, as Paul acknowledged over and over, what advantage do the Jews have? Much in every way. They're the ones who gave us the word. There's nothing anti-Semitic that anybody could ever take from Scripture. You can't say, well, the Jews are responsible for this, and therefore we don't like them. The question is whether or not God still got a plan for the Jews as his chosen people, or if we as the church, as Peter says we are, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. As Paul says in Galatians 3, we are spiritual Israel, we are the children of Abraham. If we believe in the seed of Abraham, not seeds, the seed Jesus Christ, we believe in the one descendant of Abraham that all of this was pointing to, then we become Israel. Is it? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. Come back next week, and you can be mad at me two weeks in a row. Um. So Jesus is speaking privately. Peter, James, John, Andrew asked the question, but Jesus addressed the disciples most likely. And it could have been more than the 12. It could have been this larger contingent, anywhere from 70, 120 people that followed Jesus, although some of them may have thinned out by this point because the religious leaders were hopping mad at Jesus and trouble was brewing. Everybody understood it. Um, the first thing that Jesus said to watch out for was for false prophets who claimed to be Christ. Apocalyptic fervor ran high in Jesus' day. And men were constantly claiming to be the Messiah. And in so doing, leading others to destruction because people would follow them and, and they would jump right in. Does that ever happen today? It does, doesn't it? Been happening all along. Do you suppose that there are true believers who were deceived by these false prophets, these antichrists? 
True believers? I'm not sure I have the answer to that question. Uh, You could make a case either way, but Jesus does address those who don't endure to the end a little bit later. Immediately after warning his followers about deceivers, Jesus prophesied dark days of war and rumors of war and of earthquakes and famines. But in the middle of this prophecy, Jesus says something that most people miss. These disasters do not indicate the end. Verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. In fact, would you not agree that these disasters have been true since the fall of Adam in the garden? What what are they then? They're the beginning of birth pains. And by the way, as you will look, a lot of a whole lot. Is, is left out of today that's put into the home group notes this week. One of the things that is mentioned in the leader's version of the home group notes this week is that um, there were a great number of earthquakes that increased in the Roman Empire and famine, that type of thing, not long before the temple was destroyed. So in one sense, that was an indication that the time was coming and, and the Lord could be saying that again. But these do not indicate that the end is just right upon us. They're the beginning of birth pains. In verses 9 to 13, Jesus encourages believers to stand strong in the, in the face of persecution, which is inevitable. You will be beaten, you will stand before kings to bear witness to them, and in fact, the gospel will be preached to the entire world. Now, just again... Let me mention this quickly. If we preach the gospel to the entire world, does that, if every people group ha, has the gospel, if we do that, can we hasten the Lord's return? The Lord's return has been set before the foundation of the world. We can't do anything about Jesus' return. In fact, he says, I don't even know when I'm coming. We'll, we'll address that in a little bit. However... There is a very strong emphasis here on preaching the gospel to the entire world. Our mission team has been thinking about the need for the gospel going to unreached people groups. And in fact, Jesus is essentially saying, take it everywhere. This is important. When you stand before kings, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will lead you. Now, this is another one of those verses that a lot of people make too much of. People say, well, you shouldn't be so worried about preparing a sermon. In fact, just let the Holy Spirit lead you. Do you think that's what he's saying? He's not saying that. Look, um, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit. I'm asking the Lord to help me. The entire sermon process and home group note writing process. I'm asking the Lord to lead me. No doubt. Some of the best insight that I think that I have comes when I'm up here on Sunday morning preaching. It's like the Holy Spirit just says that. And here's here's the clue how you can know that. When I say something like, let me say that again. That's, you know, I've just thought of that. But let me also say that some of the worst things that I say on Sunday morning come into my head right at the moment. And, you know, part of my brain is saying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then, ah, you said it. Now, we're not going to blame that on the Holy Spirit, are we? Um, here's, here is what Jesus says. There's one case in which you're promised to, to have the words to say by the, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's when you're standing before kings and governors. And application, certainly, when you're speaking with a lost person, how many times when you're trying to share the gospel do you say, oh, I just have no idea what to say. Just trust the Lord. You're saying exactly what you need to say, even if you think you're bumbling the mess out of it. Those are the very times that God uses the most. Even if somebody gets mad as fire with you, that could be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you have no idea. So the Lord says that's 
when the Holy Spirit will lead you. Listen, 1 Peter 3.15 actually says to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. When somebody says, what is it? Thomas Ferguson, that makes you so different besides your beard. I mean, that's a really cool beard. But besides that, I mean, I've, I've observed your life. I've watched you. What is it that makes you different? Be ready to say, you know, nothing about me. It's all about Jesus. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you his story working out in my life. Jesus tells his followers that those who endure to the end will be saved. When you think about enduring to the end, what comes to your mind? I mean, look, in our context, not a lot of persecution. We're not too worried about falling away into false doctrine. Maybe you're thinking about falling into sin or walking away from Christ because of a bitter response of something that happened in your life. And, and listen, sooner or later, almost every one of us is faced with a circumstance where we really have to evaluate, is this real? Am I going to hang in there? Maybe not, but most likely most of you will come to that place where you ask that question. And, and while that's definitely an application to this text, Jesus is referring specifically to two things, being deceived by false prophets and persecution, intense persecution to the point of martyrdom. So what are we to make of, what does it mean overcoming? What does it mean to endure to the end? I mean, in Revelation 2 to two and 3, Jesus repeatedly said, he who conquers or overcomes will be saved. So that makes you think, tend to think, you know, boy, I better hang in there or else. Well, let's look at 1 John 5. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Let's look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our behavior. Now wait, that's not what that says, is it? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, the one who believes in Jesus is the one who will overcome. But what if I lose courage in that last moment? What if when I'm faced with... Pers- Don't you wonder? I mean, what, what would it be if, 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 if people walked through with machine guns and they said, all right, those who profess Christ, stay here. If you, if you want to deny Christ, walk out. If you... Stay, we will fill this room with your blood. What would you do? I'm going to guess way more of you would stay than you think you would. Because if you believe, you will overcome. So there are two responses. What if I falter in the moment of testing? First, courage along with clarity of heart and mind is exactly what Jesus is promising to his followers who are called upon to suffer. Those who endure to the end is as much a promise as it is a warning. Second, what if Peter had denied, if he had died after denying Christ, but before the resurrection when he was essentially able to repent? What if he had died in between there? Well, that was before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. True, but long after Peter had the Holy Spirit and had taken the gospel to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, and long after he was thought to be the Pope by Catholics, Peter sided with the legalizers in Galatia and essentially was about to deny the faith until Paul rebuked him and he repented and came back to stand under the shade of the gospel and standing in the truth of the gospel. Standing firm to the end doesn't mean that you won't falter. If you were in the church history class, Wow, I should make a plug for that, shouldn't I, Neil? Uh, Professor 
Manning will be back in with his robes on this uh, fall and spring as we're going. We're going to do it a little differently this year. And Neil, will, I'm, we need to have Neil talk about this soon. You need to go back and catch up on this past year, church history. We're starting with the Reformation this year. But if you were in that church history class, you will remember. Anybody remember the Donatist? These were for the ones who said those who have fallen away under persecution in the Roman persecution under the Roman Empire cannot be permitted back into the church. If they denied Christ under intense persecution, they're done. Well, Augustine was one of the key uh, opponents of the Donatists. He spoke on behalf of the of the um, Orthodox Church. And by the way, we're going to show him. A movie a little bit later in July or early August on Augustine, sort of as a kickoff for our our study this year. And that this incident is shown in that movie where Augustine is debating the Donatist. And the Orthodox Church said, absolutely, any sin will be forgiven if one repents. Does it mean that if we fail to repent? when we have faltered under persecution, that we can lose our salvation? I don't think so. I, no, let me, don't, let me not say it that way. No, the answer is no. That's my understanding of Scripture. We were, if we fail to repent, it indicates that we were never followers of Jesus in the first place. That seems to be the best interpretation of all that Scripture has to say on this matter. Speaking of persecution... Have you seen what's going on with our brothers and sisters in Iraq? You seen that? Uh, Radical Muslims have retaken much of the country and Christians are in the crosshairs once again. And boy, people talk about this is the end of Christianity in this region of the world. Look, it's not done until God says it's done, that particular part of the world. But... These are dire moments for our brothers and sisters in Iraq. They are in the crosshairs just as believers have been worldwide since the time of Jesus. And let's just, I want us to just stop for just a moment and pray for those brothers and sisters. Ted McKinney is going to pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq. Let us pray. Our Father, our hearts are heavy for our brothers in Iraq. We know that there are thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ who truly follow your name there in Iraq. Though we don't know them, Lord, we know that um, they're being faithful to you and that they've been really, truly persecuted. Many of them have had their homes burned and many have been shot. Some have been beheaded in recent weeks. And Father, we do pray that you will just give them your strength, give them your comfort. May your Holy Spirit... Give them comfort and courage, and I pray, Lord, that you would um, help them to find a place of refuge, those who have lost their homes, who are being driven out of Iraq. Lord, we pray that you will provide food for them and provide uh, comfort and encouragement and safety with um, other groups, perhaps on the border or across the border, and and those who have been driven to Syria, too, Lord, that you would protect their lives and just uh, keep them... um, Trusting in you, Lord, we, uh, we see their courage and we, we take courage in that, seeing that they're standing strong, many thousands of them, even through this persecution. And Father, we just ask that you will uh, provide for them. May our nation be sympathetic and, and um, mm. offering help. And, and Lord, may we continue to pray for them as brothers and sisters that they may uh, be, uh, make it through this persecution. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago when Allison and I were in Australia, we heard in a church service that the largest Alpha Bible study uh, in the world was in Iraq, Baghdad, Iraq. 2,500 people, I think 24, 2,500 people attending this Bible study. And many of them are running for their lives right now. So continue to pray for them. And, and, and that actually comes back into play with what we're studying right now verse 14 in the verses that follow separate separate a lot of believers who agree on almost everything else in scripture but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be let the reader understand 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And then he goes on to say how to respond to that day. What is this abomination of desolation? I mean, Jesus seems to think that his disciples should know what he's talking about. And Mark seems to think that his readers should understand what he's talking about. Let the reader understand. They did know too. His disciples did know. And we should know. Look, in this day of Google, it's pretty easy. And Bible Gateway and all that. You can find out where this term is used in the Old Testament. Almost this entire chapter, by the way, is just loaded with Old Testament scripture and allusions to Old Testament. Hardly even touched on that. But Jesus is just interpreting what God's plan has been all along. And he's given it further understanding. And yet, it's quite difficult for us. But these guys would have known what the abomination of desolation was. It's in the book of Daniel, where the phrase is used four times. Now, we know that this phrase referred to the desecration of the temple. And Daniel's prophecy had at least two fulfillments in mind. One in 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, and I'm not going to go into that detail, but a Greek king from the Seleucid Empire, the Greek Empire had split into four different groups, and one of those came into the temple, he sacrificed pigs and other unclean animals on the altar, and that incited the Maccabean revolt. For those of you who know anything about that particular time period, you're you're getting it. That was the desolation of abomination. Or did I say that backwards? Abomination of desolation. Um, It also referred to the destruction of the temple that was to come in just a few years in A.D. 70. Clearly, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple that would occur some less than 40 years from the time that he was speaking. Uh, The abomination of desolation referred specifically to a desecration of the temple when someone stood before the altar offering sacrifices when he had no right to the blood of sacrifice, offer the blood of sacrifices of, uh, of, of sacrificed animals to the Lord. Um, But it's also a euphemism for the destruction of the temple and the city. Jesus has already said the temple is going to be destroyed. Now this abomination of desolation is going to occur. Now remember again, Jesus was talking to believers in these verses. And there's fairly good evidence that the believers in Jerusalem got out of town somewhere in A.D. 66. They got out. Jesus is saying in these verses, when you see this, get out of town now. It's one thing to be martyred for the gospel. It's another thing to be slaughtered for the temple, Jesus was saying. It's going to go down anyway, so get out of town. The question that we have to ask today is whether or not Jesus was making a double prophecy. We know Daniel prophesied two things. Was Daniel possibly prophesying three and Jesus prophesying two? The abomination of desolation. If Look, let's just say that these are interchangeable, okay? We can use them both ways. Desolation of abomination. Because I, I'm, I'm never going to remember. Um, is he saying this is happening in A.D. 70 and at the end of the age when there's a tribulation and in the middle of the tribulation someone desecrates the temple? The Antichrist, the Antichrist desecrates the temple? He might be saying that, but he might not. Um, I want to, we're going to touch on that next week, but l- let's, for the remainder of our time, look at, Well, not entirely the entire remainder of the time. But I want us to look at this literary device that we talked about a few ways, a few uh, weeks ago that Mark employs. Uh, Do you remember what a chiastic structure looks like in Scripture? It's a series of points that are uniquely structured and, and, and structured in such a way that it ties together random thoughts, what appear to be random thoughts. The points would be structured like this. A, B, C, B, A. Or I see it this other way. You see it the other way. Going like this. 
uh, a chiasm is like an arrow when you look at it like this on paper. It's kind of like it's making a very sharp point. And Mark 13, 5 to 23, seems pretty convincingly when you look at it to be structured this way. Here's what it looks like when you fill in these verses. He starts off talking about deceivers. Watch out for false prophets. Then he said, you're going to hear about wars all over the place. Wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. And in the midst of all of that, there's a persecution of Christians. And then there's going to be a specific war in Judea. And I'm going to tell you, watch out for false prophets. Protect the integrity of the gospel all the way along. Do you see how A corresponds with A? B with B? And then right in the middle is the persecution of Christians. Almost certainly, Jesus was at the very least prophesying the destruction of the temple that occurred in A.D. 70 in these verses. Because that's right in the middle of this structure. Remember, this is on top of all that he had said about the end of the temple system, including the response that he gave to the disciples when they were admiring the temple, the beginning of the chapter. And none of these things yet point to the second coming of Christ. So this may be one of the strangest sermons you have ever heard, but here at the very end of the sermon, I want to give you an outline of Mark 13, two weeks in. First, there's the introduction in verses 1 to 4 when there's the talk about the temple. Then the second part that we have just covered, 5 to 23, false prophets, wars, and persecution of believers. Then Jesus talks very specifically in verses 24 to 27 about the coming of the Son of Man. And fourth, signs of Jesus' return, the hour of which no one knows. Um. I'm going to leave this outline on the screen for just a a few moments. But I I want to say a word about this third point before we close by dealing with a few really difficult verses at the end of Jesus' message. There's a whole other topic in this section that we touched on earlier in our study of Mark, but haven't in a while. Jesus' use of of the term son of man to refer to himself. Uh, Mark points back to Daniel Again, who uses that term, the Son of Man. It refers to a divine one who comes in the clouds to rule over all nations. To this point in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus has not given specific signs that point to his second advent. But now he uses the same language as a sign that he will return. By the t- but for all practical purposes, the signs that Jesus gives in this section, verses 24 to 27, when you see the signs, he's here. He is here. David Garland says this. And clearly, this is a guy who would not be a dispensationalist. I, I, I recognize that. But here's what he says. And, and, and certainly, we, whether you... Whatever you believe about the Lord's return, you can understand the point that he's making here. Busy in oneself with calculations about dates is thus a fruitless exercise that can only distract from the mission that God has called the church to do. Preach the gospel. God does not require a studious deciphering of international threats and natural disasters. But spiritual vigilance that makes one ready for Christ's return. Whenever he comes. Listen. If you've grown up. If you've believed for a long long time. Like I have. That at the end of this age. There's going to be a rapture. Then a tribulation. In the middle of which the Antichrist. Desecrates the temple. And at the end there's this tremendous battle at Armageddon. If you've believed like that all your life. You could be fairly frustrated right now. Hang in there until next week. As Bob, as the great theologian Bob Dylan said, the times, they are a-changing. And, and while, you know, this has been the belief for a long time, these things kind of go in shifts. And you just think about how many times the people that you admire so much have changed their dates. 
it's all the, it's got to be this, it's got to be this, it's got to be this. The budding of the fig tree, that's the Israel becoming a nation. I'm all about Israel becoming a nation. I love, I love Israel in the Middle East. I, I, I'm all about that stuff. But there's more to it. At least have a larger look at what you believe. And then whatever you decide, this is where I stand on what I believe about Jesus' return, his second coming. It's recognized that it's a pretty big tent. And there are a lot of people that don't look at it like you do. I said last week, the majority of Americans would believe like that. The majority of believers worldwide would not. So, um, and younger people feel a lot differently about end times kinds of things. And they're understanding it differently than we have. You know, when we would sing... I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time. And that's, you know what? That's true. There's no time to change your mind. The sun is coming. You've been left behind. In the end, that's the way it's going to be. One is taken and one is left. And if you understand that from the book of Luke, the one who is taken is taken to judgment. And the one who is left, actually, is the one who is blessed. But... That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother study. Anybody got lunch plans today? <laughs> uh, well, you're going to discuss. Uh, okay, so here's the question. Let's look at this verse. A uh, few verses that are difficult. What does it mean in verse 30 that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place? Fairly easy to say. Yes, Jesus was talking about the generation, the the group of people who heard him. Many of those people were alive forty years or less than forty years later when the temple was destroyed. Does it refer to the end of the age as well? It could. It very well may. And and it could be that all that. We believed all along, you know, those of us who grew up saying it's going to be a rapture, tribulation. This is exactly the way it is. That may be true. It very well may be true. But it may not be true. We're going to discuss this more at home group this week. Uh, Verse 32. Jesus says that no one can know the specific specific, specific hour of his return. Not even himself. Now, Now, what does that mean? I mean, isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he know all things? The best answer is this. We don't know what he means. I mean, one possible explanation is that while Jesus was on earth, he willingly gave up his certain divine privileges, like the privilege of knowing all things about all times, about all. He, for the time that he was on earth, he gave up privileges, privileges of his deity, not his div- divinity at all. He was just as divine every step of the way. But there were certain things that it appears he said, I'm putting this on hold until I am once again in glory and in a glorified body. And I will, uh, for the time, put this aside. That may not be the best explanation, though. It could be that Jesus is so committed to his Father's will and plan that he puts even the hour of his return totally in the Father's hand. And that's difficult for us to get our heads around, of course, because our understanding of God is analogical, not univocal. Okay. Let's move on. David and I have been thinking about that a lot uh, lately, and actually it is so much deeper, but it is God doesn't function the way that we function. He's so much bigger than we are. We cannot figure him out. What does he say in Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to our God, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and our children. Sometimes, and even as complicated as this is, look, as complicated as this is, you need to start and end at the same place. I trust you, God. You're bigger than I am. The message in these last verses of the text is clear. Be ready for Jesus' return. How can we be ready? By believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. 
your only hope of escape and the judgment to come. Mark doesn't talk about the judgment at the end of the age when Jesus comes back. Matthew does in great detail in this same talk. Matthew records it. There is judgment at the end of the age. Nations are judged. Individuals are judged. And the only way to be ready is to say, I could never be good enough, but, I, but Jesus is good enough. And he died on the cross, and I, I repent of my sins, and I trust what he did. It's payment for my sins, and I believe him. This whole book of Mark, we've seen Jesus debating with the Jewish leaders, and the primary debate was this, how does one relate to God? And the leader said, it's about good works. And Jesus said, it's about me. It's about a relationship with me. Our faith has not been tested by the persecution that has afflicted so many of our brothers and sisters. In every century since Jesus prophesied tribulation for his followers. Can you imagine that right now? A Christian who is hiding is about to be found out by the Muslims. And they're going to make great fanfare as they bring him to be beheaded. Or to murder a whole family. Because of their faith in Christ. We haven't been tested like that. But our faith is tested by worldly temptations. By the promise of comfort and ease. But Jesus said have none of that. Be diligent in what you are doing day in and day out. You never know when I'm going to return. So be vigilant. Be ready for my return. Follower of Jesus. One who has never placed your faith in Jesus. Are you ready? Do you feel ready? Do you feel satisfied? Do you, if he came today, are you ready for that? Let's pray. As we pray, the worship team is coming to lead us. In a song about salvation, Jesus paid it all. And you know it's not typical that we give an invitation here on Sunday morning and That's not technically what this is. But we'll stand together in just a moment and we'll sing. And if there is something, you just want to come to the front and kneel and give over to the Lord and say, Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. My life does not reflect that I belong to you. It's time. Or if you just want to pray for... That doesn't mean if someone comes, that's the prayer. It could be you want to pray that the Lord would get a hold of someone that is very close to you before the time when Jesus returns. Or if you want to come and say, I am placing my faith in Jesus. He's my only hope, not my good works, not my baptism, not my giving to the church, not any of these things. They're all important things very important parts of our walk with Jesus but have you repented of your sins trusted in him Father turn our eyes toward you toward heaven may we be ready for Jesus return may we always be living as though the judgment is this afternoon tomorrow next week just stand together as we go out this week and thinking about the Lord's return in our lives today let's listen to John's words from the end of, of the word in Revelation Jesus said to me these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord The God of the spirits and the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Mm-hmm.